So, two and a half thousand years ago, approximately, um, and he just walked around India teaching people, and uh, he was awakened, the the awakened one, and uh, he taught people, and many, many other people awoke. They became enlightened. They were called Alahants. So the, the, uh, the Buddha said they were as, in, as enlightened, as awake as he was, but they were called Alahants. He was called the Buddha to distinguish him because he was the first one. He kind of discovered the Dharma and then he taught it. So all the people who were enlightened after him were Alahants because they, they discovered the Dharma in themselves, but as a result of the teachings of the Buddha. Very, very simple. And that went on, you know, all of the Buddha's life, really. And so there was just one Buddha and many, many Alahants. And then the Buddha went into Parinirvana. And in ordinary parlance, that means he died. And uh, sometime later, uh, the Buddha's followers began to mythologize him, you could say. And they came up with this idea that actually he wasn't the first. There were Buddhas before him. In fact, there were six Buddhas before this Buddha. And they were born a long, long time ago. So long ago that you can't imagine how long ago it was. So like innumerable Kalpas. Now a Kalpa is an unimaginably long time. Um, one of the texts tells us how long it is approximately. If you've got uh, a great big square mile um, stone, stone a square a cube square right great big rock and every hundred years a goddess comes down and just strokes the rock once with a piece of Benares silk has to be Benares silk <laughs> and then goes back up and then a hundred years she comes back down and she does it again when that rock has been worn away that's the end of the Kalpa so innumerable of those loads and loads of them and more than innumerable one text tells us there was a previous Buddha and before that Buddha innumerable Kalpas ago another Buddha so we're not really talking about history here we're talking about you know unimaginable periods so in a way out of time so you get this idea of a lineage of Buddhas and ours was the seventh seven of course because it's a kind of special number isn't it seven and then you get these Buddhas of the past seven and then later on there were 15 and then later on 24 and then later on 51 and so on it just multiplies and multiplies and then you've of course you've got the future so they came up with this idea of a buddha of the future and the great bodhisattva maitreya is waiting for his time to become the buddha and what makes the buddha a buddha is that they they're reborn into a world system where there's no dharma and they have to rediscover it and then tell everybody else about it. That's what a Buddha essentially is. Um, so you get this idea of all these Buddhas going throughout time, uh, but you can only have one at a time. The world system can only manage one Buddha at a time. But then the Mahayana, the great way to enlightenment, came along three, four, five hundred years after the Buddha. And they weren't satisfied with that, so they came up with this idea that actually there were many world systems. This isn't the only world system. A world system is a, is a kind of an Indian concept. It, it's more than the world. It's not quite a galaxy, but it's something like that. It's like lots of many worlds bringing together as a world system. So you've got many of them, innumerable world systems. And some of those other world systems have Buddhas in them. 
Yep, just like this world system's got uh, Shakyamuni the Buddha, other world systems have Buddhas in them. And so now you've got the idea of not only Buddhas going way back in the past and there's a Buddha in the future, but also in, in space. There are innumerable Buddhas in space all over the universe teaching the Dharma in their own ways. So now you've got this idea of world systems with Buddhas in. So there are some world systems that have Buddhas in and some world systems that don't have Buddhas. Yeah, we're lucky. We, we live in a world system with a Buddha. But then there are two kinds of Buddha world systems. They're actually called Buddha Kshetras. Uh, a Kshetra is, is usually translated as field. So it's a field. And that's quite an interesting um, translation, actually, because in English, anyway, the word, the word field means field. But it also means um, an area, doesn't it? Like you get an electrical field. So it's, it's like an area, a Buddha area. You could say a Buddha region. To, to coin a phrase from the Sutra Golden Light, a profound Buddha region. You get this idea of Buddha regions in the universe. So, there are two kinds of Buddha fields. There are pure Buddha fields and impure Buddha fields. We live in an impure Buddha field. What's an impure Buddha field? An impure Buddha field is a world system that has all six realms of existence in it. So the six realms of existence you'll know probably from your level two uh, Buddhism. You might have done it then or maybe level three. If you remember the wheel of life you've got the six realms of existence. So you've got the human realm, you've also got the deva realm or realms actually, the deva realms, uh, which are the realms of the gods. And then you've got the hells, the different realms of hell. And then you've got the animal realm and the hungry ghosts. So the, so uh, I think that's, is that six? Anybody <coughs> been counting? One more. And then the anti-gods or the angry gods, the, the jealous gods, the, the, those beings who are trying to get what the gods have got. So let me just say a few words about, do I need to say a few words about these to anybody? Yeah. Yeah. I do. Okay. So uh, the human realm we know about because we live in it. Uh, the thing about the human realm is that um, there's both pleasure and pain in it. So it's a mixture of pleasure and pain, as you know from your own experience. Uh, the deva realm is the realm of the gods. And the, the realm of the gods is the realm of pure beauty, light, pleasure, joy, rapture, all those kind of things. Um, and then there's the realm of the, let's, let's take the anti-gods. The anti-gods are jealous, they're angry, they're aggressive, they're competitive. Have you ever seen The Sopranos? Anybody ever watched The Sopranos? The anti-gods. <laughs> Tony Soprano, the supreme anti-god, wants what all the rich people have got and goes about getting it. That's an anti-god. So they're, they're trying to get what the gods have got. The gods have got what they've got through their own karma through their positive action, skillful action. And the result of positive action, as you know, according to Buddhism, is pleasure, happiness, freedom, and so on. So the gods are living out the fruits of their previous good actions. Now the jealous gods want that without having to do all the good work. They want to just grab it. And then you've got the hells. Now the hells are just pure suffering. And uh, yeah, so... 
what else is there? The animals? The animal realms. Now you might be surprised to think that the animal realms are suffering, but according to Buddhist teachings, the animal realms are realms of suffering. When you see those little three foot high ponies out there, you think, what's suffering about that? <laughs> Being fed every day, etc. It's the suffering of very limited horizons. Uh, just eating you know, grass all day kind of thing and nothing much else to do. So it's the suffering of restriction. Um, have I gone through them all now? Hungry goats. Hmm? Hungry goats. Oh, the hungry ghost. The hungry ghost is, uh, oh, that's interesting. It's the realm of unsatisfied craving. So the hungry ghosts are strange looking beings. They're very, very thin with bloated stomachs, tiny mouths, uh, which represents the fact that the, there are things there to be had but they, they can't get them into their mouth quickly enough because their mouth is so small and they've got these great big stomachs to fill. So big stomach, small mouths is, is, a, is a symbol of unsatisfiable craving. And when they do manage to get something into their mouth, it turns to fire in their stomach. So even when they get what they're trying to get, it doesn't work out. So that sense of longing and unsatisfied craving. So these are the six realms and according to Buddhism they are actually objectively existing worlds. Many contemporary Westerners won't buy that of course but they're also mental states. So it's obvious isn't it that the, the, the realm of the hungry ghosts is the realm of the addict, the habitual craving person who's trying to get things and whatever they get doesn't satisfy them. You could say it's the realm of the malcontent, the person who never gets what they want and even <coughs> when they do get it, it doesn't work out for them or they're not satisfied. Complete dissatisfaction. And then the hell realms, well there were many many hell realms, uh, mental states of hell aren't they? There's depression and schizophrenia, all the mental illnesses, but there's also the hell of being in a relationship that doesn't work, the hell of, um, well, when you look at the world, the news, mm -hmm. when you think of people who are currently living in the Gaza Strip or Syria or any of those places, it's certain parts of Africa, um, Colombia, those places that are just a hell on earth, aren't they? Can you imagine living in those kind of situations? So the hells, lots of different levels of hell, physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, all sorts of realms of suffering. Uh, we've done the hungry ghost the, uh, and the animal realm of course we can get into an animal state can't we as human beings where all we're, con all we're concerned about is food and sex and getting what we want and we're not really bothered about anything else apart from what we want so that's the kind of animal realm. <coughs> the hungry, uh, the, uh, the anti-gods sometimes we get into that state we have to admit don't we where we're jealous of what other people got they've got these fa this fantastic house and brilliant girlfriend and you feel really jealous of that and you want what they've got and you're, you even start fantasizing about how you might get it from them and well <laughs> we're Buddhists so we probably don't do that but you know there are small small elements of that aren't there in, ev in every life where you, you want something and you're not prepared to do the work to get it you just want to grab it there's a pen on the table it's not your pen take it anyway because it's a nice pen it doesn't seem to be anybody else's that's this little bit of uh, anti-god there isn't it it's not yours you didn't work to get that pen but you'll have it anyway 
So all that. So these are the realms. Now I've only gone them in, in very small detail because that isn't the, the point of today. But the reason I want to say this is because I think usually, this, this may be a Western thing, I'm not really sure, but usually we think of mental states and the world as being two separate things, impermeable to each other. So, um, you know, the world out there is unchanged by our mental states, and our mental states is unchanged by the world. They're two separate compartments. But in Buddhism, they're not. They, they're very much part of each other. And um, so here we are in this beautiful place, isn't it? amazing so beautiful the houses are gorgeous gorgeous stone isn't it and it's quiet except for the birds singing I haven't even heard a sheep just birds singing and you've got the trees and it's the sky is wonderful it's just like whoa so beautiful isn't it but we're just here for the weekend and we're all having a nice time we're having a week off from my usual life what about the people who live here do you think they're appreciating this all the time every minute of their life what about when they're having an argument with their spouse you know they're really having one of those big rows that some people sometimes people have and really telling each other horrible things you think they're enjoying this what about if one of them has just found out that they've just got a terminal illness do you think they're enjoying this so worlds and mental states are very very much connected they're the subject and objective of the same thing they're two sides of the same coin and uh, I was in Waterstones around Christmas time I took my daughter there to try and buy her something for her birthday and uh, there was Steve he's not even here now as he's one of the cooks Steve was sitting there so in the cafe so we sat down and had a coffee with him and as we were talking I and I uh, a book caught my eye it's a book of photography so once we'd finished our conversation, I just wandered over there and opened it. And I found this quote by Baudelaire. There is no landscape independent of the mind. There is no landscape independent of the mind. What a brilliant quote that is. So this landscape around here doesn't exist independent of our perception of it. The way we perceive the landscape is dependent upon our mental states. So each mental state we're in, we're in a different landscape, we're in a different world. And then there's Milton, of course, Paradise Lost. He has Satan say, the mind is its own place. And in itself can make a heaven of hell, a hell of heaven. What a brilliant quote that is. I'll read that again. The mind is its own place and in itself can make a heaven of hell a hell of heaven. So this idea that the mind is place or place is the mind, is, it, it runs throughout the whole of Buddhism. They're not really separate things. The mental state you occupy is also the world you currently occupy. So we can weave in and out of those six realms in a day, can't we? We might wake up in the human realm, then we have an argument over breakfast, and suddenly we might be in the hell realm. And then we walk down the street and we, there's a big advert for a new car. And now you're in the hungry ghost realm and so on throughout the day you just move from realm to realm from world to world we live in different worlds 
I wonder what world you're all in now. Are we in the same world at the moment? Are we, or are we all in slightly different worlds? So this is important because you've got all these world systems and some of them are pure Buddha field. Uh, ah, I was talking about impure Buddha fields, also, and that's where I was. We live in an impure Buddha field because they're all six realms. But there are pure Buddha fields as well. And a pure Buddha field only has two realms. It has the realms of the humans and the realms of the gods. That's the only two realms it has. So once you're reborn in a pure Buddha field, you cannot fall into any of the states of the, the worlds of woe. You cannot fall into hell or the animals or the hungry ghosts or the anti-gods. Those are cut off from you. That's what a pure Buddha field is. Now all this might seem to you to be very airy-fairy and kind of oh, ridiculous. But in my view it has uh, great meaning. For me it has great meaning. Um, there's a, there was, he died a few years ago, a uh, great man, John Hick. Anybody heard of John Hick? The philosopher of religion, a Christian, uh, Christian, but also a philosopher of, philosopher of religion. And uh, he lived in Birmingham actually, and few of the people coming along to the Birmingham Centre used to meet up with him sometimes. And uh, he came up with this very, very good idea of uh, different kinds of interpretation of religious or spiritual experiences. So let's say you have an experience, you're sitting in meditation and you have an experience of the Buddha. Not that you're trying to visualize the Buddha, but he seems to suddenly appear before you in your meditation. And he actually teaches you. Yeah? And you come away from that and you say, oh, the Buddha came to me and he taught me. Yeah? Now there are different ways of interpreting that. There's what John Hick calls the naive realist interpretation. The naive realist interpretation, which was, the Buddha actually came and taught me. I was talking to him, the Buddha. That's the naive realist interpretation. The non-realist interpretation is nothing happened whatsoever. It's just a great hallucination in your mind. It's completely meaningless. That's a non-realist interpretation of a of a spiritual experience. The critical realist interpretation is that I believe something really important happened there. Mm -hmm. Something really deeply significant happened. I don't really believe the Buddha, who lived two and a half thousand years ago, came and spoke to me, but I believe something really significant, life-changing, happened. It was real. Yeah. Do you get the, the yeah. so naive realist, non-realist, and critical realist. Now I'm a critical realist. Let, let's just have a show of hands, shall we? Who amongst us is a naive realist? It's a pejorative term, unfortunately, isn't it? And I think that's an unfortunate uh, phrase, naive realism. No one's, no one wants to be naive. Think, no, I'm not going to. I talked about this at the Birmingham Buddhist Centre a few days ago. One person put their hand up. Let's just let's get rid of the naive and call it a realist. Yeah, who's a realist? Okay, still okay. We got one. Good. Who's a non-realist? 
Naive realists really believe the Buddha came and talked no, no, to you. No, no. Oh no, okay. okay. A non-realist believes nothing happened whatsoever, it's just a hallucination. Yeah. yeah. And the other one? You're one of those. Uh, the critical realist is the person who says, well, I don't believe the Buddha actually came and spoke to you, but I believe something deeply significant happened. Most contemporary Western Buddhists are critical realists. Okay, so we're all critical realists. So now we've got this idea of pure Buddha fields, and we're thinking, what is all this about? So my job is to explain it to you. So, <clears throat> how am I going to do that? Uh, any world systems? Uh, that's where my notes run out. So, <laughs> didn't have time for the rest, but we have got time. So, um, what is a pure Buddha field? So, uh, and specifically, uh, um, in Mahayana Buddhism, there are three or four texts, sutras, which focus on one particular Buddha, Amitabha, and his pure Buddha field, Sukhavati. Now, Sukhavati is made up of two words, Sukha, which means um, happy, blissful, pleasure, and Vati, which means land or place. So it's the land of bliss, or the happy land. And in the happy land, um, there is no suffering. There is no suffering. Now, to many people, this, a lot of contemporary Western Buddhists especially really don't like this, this idea because it, it sounds very familiar, doesn't it? Sounds like some other religion we've heard of, <laughs> where you've got heaven and God. It sounds very similar, doesn't it? In the world, there are more pure land Buddhists that is Amitabha devotees who believe in the pure land than any other kind of Buddhist. We are in the minority. Yeah. China and Japan, full of pure land Buddhists. China is a big country. So apparently there are more pure land Buddhists in the world than any other denomination. And I take it very seriously, actually. I take it literally. So there's another quote that I'd like to quote uh, to you. This comes from somebody called Kenneth K. Tanaka, and it's from his book called The Dawn of Chinese Pure Land Doctrine. He says, under this view, that's the view of many Buddhist Buddha worlds, under this view, let's just get rid of my, it says none of your preferred networks are available, thank you. Under this view, the Buddhist cosmos is not an objective and material, but a subjective and spiritual reality. The cosmos is not objective and material, but subjective and spiritual. The transcendent Buddhas, that's all these Buddhas everywhere, and their realms that fill the universe are concretized expressions of the eternal Buddha principle, Dhamma, which as the basic reality of the universe is ever active to lead all beings to enlightenment. So I need to bring this down to earth a little bit, don't I? So, what I'm going to do this is by a teaching that many of you will know already. The 12 Posnivdhidhanas. Yeah. So, this is the subjective uh, 
what it feels like to, to tread the path to enlightenment. This is a subjective element to it. So it begins with an awareness of dukkha, awareness that there is something. On account of that, you want to practice spiritual life. So faith. Faith is the, the feeling, the sense, the intuition that there is something other than what we can see around us. Faith in enlightenment. Practice for a while and you begin to feel a bit happier. Joy. That turns into rapture, ecstasy. Especially around here, we, we be, we're beginning to meditate. So we're beginning to get into the higher meditative absorptions, the jhanas. So rapture now, into serenity, deep sense of calm, deep sense of tranquility. Out of serenity comes a deeper happiness. It's different from this, these kind of happiness, which is a up, happy kind of, Overjoyed. This is a deeper happiness, a deep sense of fulfillment, purpose in life. Out of that comes absorption, samadhi, which is where all your energies are together. You know those moments that you sometimes get where you feel completely whole, completely here, completely present to yourself and others. Complete totality of being here. No distractions, nothing else you'd rather do, no one else you'd rather be, nowhere else you'd rather be. This is life, here, happening, absorption. From that sense of absorption, it's possible to break through the veils of unreality to insight. So now comes insight, awakening, the beginning of awakening. Out of that comes disenchantment. Up until then, you've been somewhat enchanted with the world around you. It's been pulling you, luring you to it. But now, you're disenchanted by the world. You're definitely on your way to enlightenment. Out of that comes dispassion, uh, no suffering really whatsoever. And then, I didn't have room for the last one, but the last one is full awakening. Buddhahood or Arahantship. Pardon? Uh, yeah. There's 11 with that one, right? Yeah. Uh, so freedom, isn't that? Isn't freedom at the top there? Yeah, that's right. There's liberation and then there's knowledge of liberation. Yeah, so there's another two to go. But, you know, they're up there somewhere. Outside. They're outside. Okay, so you, this, this is, we, we all know this already now. But we also know, don't we, that this between here and here is very important because up, up until here, you're still in the mundane world, as it were. You can still fall back at any point. You can get right up here, here, right into very absorbed mental states and then you come out of them and you have an argument and you come right back down into one of the states of woe. So it's reversible here. From here, once you've got insight into the way things are, you cannot fall back. So this is a state of irreversibility. This is the world. This is Sukhavati. Yeah. The pure Buddha fields start here. Yeah. So from here, insight, disenchantment, dispassion, liberation, and knowledge of liberation, that's where that's why Sukhavati is. So Sukhavati is the concrete expression, the concretization, to use Kenneth Tanaka's term, of all these mental states here. So it's highly imaginative. This is conceptual, using words, conceptual formulations. 
the, the Amitabha Sutras not really into conceptual formulations of a path. They would rather paint a picture. So the last little bit of this talk, I'm just going to tell you a little bit about what the uh, Sukhavati is like. Just take a few elements of it. Um, the ground, depending on the sutra actually, there are three or four sutras and they're all slightly different, but uh, in one of the sutras, the shorter sutra, uh, the ground is golden. So everywhere the ground is made of gold. In another one, it's lapis lazuli threaded through with golden threads. <coughs> the trees are made of precious metals and jewels. Right. So uh, let me just read you firstly from the Purusha Sutra. Where are they? They're somewhere in here. Well, I can't find them for now. So let me just read you from the longer sutra, see if I can find those. Dual trees. Those dual trees are of various colours, numerous colours, and of numerous hundreds of thousands of colours. There are dual trees golden in colour, made of gold. There are some silver in colour, made of silver. Emerald, crystal, mother of pearl, red pearl, sapphire and then there are some made of two precious substances gold and silver, some of three precious substances gold, silver and emerald and so on right up to seven and then you've got this whole section some trees have roots of gold, trunks of silver, limbs of emerald, branches of crystal, leaves of mother of pearl, flowers of red pearl and fruits of sapphire some trees have roots of silver, trunks of it, it goes on and on and on like this, <laughs> all the different combinations, and you think, why? Why does it go into so much detail? The reason it goes into so much detail is because they're meditation texts. And the, the point is that you're supposed to try to see them. You'll try to see a tree with, with silver uh, trunk and golden boughs and red fruit and so on and so on and so on. You see all these different kinds of... So they, they're kind of meditation texts. Uh, someone you know in Sweden, I did a Pure Land thing in Sweden a little while ago, and she, she's really into the Pure Land, but there's one thing she doesn't like, because she's a nature lover. And what she likes about nature is it's alive, but of course a jewel tree is made of dead things. It's made of stone and so on. But then, in the longer sutra, it makes it clear that the jewels and the precious metals are not the kinds of jewels and precious metals you get in this world. They are soft and they grow. Yeah. So you've got what you've got to do is you, you have to use your imagination here. So you use your memory. So you've probably seen sapphires and so on, even if only on a film or something. You've seen sapphires and gold and silver. You've seen all that, and you've seen trees. Now you have to merge them. Yeah. So the tree becomes silver, gold, sapphire, 
ruby etc etc but it's still a tree it's still alive and I noticed that uh, last last night I was talking about the uh, the jewel tree here that Janet made especially for this so you've got silver bells <laughs> You've got the bells and you've got the flowers and the leaves and the jewels on it. That's, but here, Anthony's brought a bonsai here. So now you've got a tree and it does have some little things on it, little adornments. You've got to kind of merge these two together. You know what it's like when you've come out uh, very early in the morning, you come out and the sun's just up and dew is still on everything. Shimmering. The light is shining on it, on the leaves, the beautiful leaves, but each leaf has drops of water on it, perhaps cobwebs going across with drops of water, and it's shimmering with colours, many, many colours. This is a jewel tree. So you've got jewel trees, golden ground, jewel trees, lotus ponds with uh, lotuses blue in colour, red, white and another colour, yellow I think, four colours of lotuses and they are the size of cartwheels, yeah, cartwheels. Now size is very interesting in the Pure Land because uh, uh, I was reading a book, I'm going to mention you again Janet, Janet lent me a book of conversations with David Hockney, he's talking to an art critic and uh, David Hockney at one point is talking about the difference between the way we see and the way a camera sees as it were. A camera sees geometrically. So if a, someone take, take a picture of this room everything would be the right geometric size. This would be so many inches or meters and so on. Yeah? We don't see like that. We see partly geometrically and partly psychologically. Uh, so what he said is if you look at, if, if we all look at that Buddha Rupa now, that Buddha Rupa has become bigger yeah, than, than, it, than its geometrical size because you're, especially if you love that Buddha figure as I do, I really love that Buddha figure and he's really big in my mind. Yeah. You know children when they first start to draw and they draw your house with parents in, how big are the parents? They're much bigger than the house, aren't they? That's how important you are to your children. Yeah? You're more important to your, ch to your children than the house is. The house is small, you're big. Yeah? So the, cart the, the, the cartwheel size lotuses, it simply means that's the way the beings in, in Sukhavati see them. So size, the bigger the thing, the more spiritually important it is. Now, that's how big they are in the one of the sutras. In the other sutra, let's see if I can find it. I'm going to tell you about the lotuses in the uh, the rivers. Oh, may not be able to find them. Oh, here we go. And it is carpeted in every direction with lotus flowers made of the seven precious substances. Lotuses made of jewels. There are lotus flowers measuring half a league. Now a league is a translation of the yojana. A yojana is a measurement of uncertain 
uh, exactitude. So yojana literally means a harnessing and it seems to be that it's to do with how far you could take a horse on a harness before you had to stop and re-harness another horse. So how far is that? Who knows? It can be anything from two and a half miles to 18 miles. Right? Let's say it's nine miles. A yojana is nine miles. So there are lotus flowers measuring half a league. Yeah, four and a half miles. Others measuring one league. Others measuring two, three, four, or five leagues. Or measuring as many as 10 leagues. 90 miles? Lotus is 90 miles in circumference. And from each dual lotus issue in every direction 36,000 million rays of light. And from the tip of these rays of light emerge 3,600,000 million Buddhas with bodies of golden colour possessed of the 32 marks of the superior human being. You have to visualise this. Each one of them goes to measureless, countless world systems in the eastern region of the universe. When they arrive in those world systems, they teach the Dharma to living beings there. In the same way, they go to the west and the north and so on. So you have to try and visualise this. So in the first, in the shorter sutra, the, it's just a, the, the lotus flowers are just a kind of, um, they're just something to absorb yourself in. In the longer sutra, they become indicative of compassion going out in every direction of the universe. How are you doing with all this? In the, um, in the shortest uh, Sukhavati Bhuva Sutra, the lotus flowers are simply meditation objects. They're beautiful, you see them as blue or red, and they're this big, and you just absorb yourself in them. In the longer sutra, they become much more than that, because all these Buddhas are coming out of them, teaching in all directions of the universe. So they become meditations on the vastness of space and compassion going out in all directions. Yeah. Just a couple more things to say about the uh, birds. Pure lands, right, don't have any animals in them. But in Sukhavati there are birds. But they're magical emanations made by the Buddha. Because how can you have a beautiful countryside without birds? You have to have birds and birdsong, don't you? So you've got the birds. But what are they doing? The birds, they're teaching the Dharma. <laughs> they're teaching the Dharma, they're teaching the five spiritual faculties, the Eightfold Path, etc. They're just teaching the Dharma. Now, that's a crazy image, isn't it? It becomes really Disney-esque. <laughs> Imagine a Disney film with one of the birds teaching the Dharma, and it all becomes somewhat childish. A lot of people feel involved with ridiculous Birds teaching the Dharma, how can that be? So, my critical realist interpretation of this is a Zen poem that begins, it's called the Zen, the Zen Rinkushu if you're interested, it begins, nothing whatever is hidden. From of old all is clear as daylight. An old pine tree preaches wisdom and a wild bird is crying out truth. I think that's what it means. Interestingly enough, the Buddha Amitabha, so of the three sutras that I'm familiar with, so 
So all together, they're probably 100 and 120 pages all together. Amitabha does not teach the Dharma once, all the way through. He's like a silent Buddha. He does say a few words, but he's not really teaching the Dharma in those words. He doesn't teach the Dharma. He's like a silent Buddha. But his land teaches the Dharma. The birds are teaching the Dharma. The trees are teaching the Dharma. The rivers are teaching the Dharma. The rivers, let's talk a little bit about the rivers now. The rivers can be anything from half a yojana to a hundred yojanas wide. So like hundreds of miles wide. And they produce a delightful sound. So sounds are really big in Sukhavati as well. I'll say a bit more about that in a moment. But they produce a beautiful sound that everyone wants to hear. And the sound is impermanence, calm, and another word which I can't remember. But words of the, I think, insubstantiality, no self. That's right. Impermanence, calm, no self. So when you hear the river, the noise of the river trickling past you, you actually hear the Dharma. So remember the, the beings, in, I'll talk more about the beings in Sukhavati more, but they're up here somewhere. They don't really need to be taught the Dharma conception anymore. They've got it. They've understood. It's in their heart. And now everything they see significance everywhere. Everything is significant to them. Everything has meaning. So what's that? From whatever, nothing, nothing whatever is hidden. This is another thing about Sukhavati. Nothing is opaque. You can see through everything. You can see through the jewel trees to the ground and so on. So everything is utterly clear to you. Talk about the beings tomorrow. Yeah. From of old, all is as clear as daylight. There is no night and day in Sukhavati. Everything is clear, crystal clear. An old pine tree preaches wisdom. And a wild bird is crying out truth. Have you ever had that kind of experience where you maybe on your retreat, you're on a retreat, just had a meditation, fairly concentrated, you go out and the countryside is more than it ever was to you. It's like, whoa, you've never seen it so green, the flowers so red, the flowers so yellow. You've never heard the birds sing so clearly, and it's utterly clear to you. And you feel, not only is it wonderful and beautiful and beautiful, but you also feel there's some significance there that you can't quite catch on to. But you know it's there. There's some, something. It's almost like the universe is saying, hey. And you think, what is it? What is the universe trying to tell you? It's almost like reality is now really impinging on you. As it does all the time, except we're so in our own little world that we don't notice. But reality is impinging on us all the time. And we go out for that meditation and we're open to it. And it's as if the truth is just there. If only we could just see a bit more clearly. If only we could just hear a bit more clearly. It's there for us. The pure land is there all of the time. And I just want to finish. When you said the truth, what do you mean? The truth? <laughs> well, the, the truth of the fact that everything's impermanent, that there's no self, there are no beings really, there's just flow of energy, 
that um, it's the truth that the Buddha awakens to. Money. Yeah, it's the truth that we're trying to awaken to. The reality that's out there. Yeah. Could you call it absolute truth as against mundane truth? I don't much like the word absolute, but um, unconditional truth. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So when you've let go of one place that I might be close to getting to that, I'm also painting. Ah. Uh huh. You talked about the countryside. Yes. When I'm painting. Yes. I'm not me. Uh-huh. I'm just something which I can't even put into words. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. that's the only way I can try and... Yeah, in a way, probably what's happening, you become very, very absorbed. That's, and I was going to ask you about that, because I think that's where I would go. Yeah, yeah. You become very, very absorbed, and you're very, very close to understanding then. From absorption, there's a very, very thin, porous line between being very absorbed and then understanding. So that line becomes very, very thin. Yeah. So another way you talk about psychopathy is that the line between self and reality is very, very thin. It's a realm of awakening, really. I'm just going to finish with this beautiful section here. He's talking, the Buddha's talking to Shalikutra, and he says, furthermore, Shalikutra, when the rows of palm trees and nets of tinkling bells in that Buddha field sway in the wind, a sweet and enraptured sound issues from them. This concert of sounds is like a set of heavenly symbols with a hundred thousand million playing parts. When these symbols are played by expert musicians, a sweet and enrapturing sound issues from them. In exactly the same way, a sweet and enrapturing sound proceeds from these rows of palm trees and those nets of tinkling bells when they sway in the wind. When human beings in the world hear this sound, they remember the Buddha and feel his presence in their whole body. They remember the Dharma and feel its presence in their whole body. And they remember the Sangha and feel its presence in their whole body. Love that. So Buddha, Dharma and Sangha, we were singing their praises together weren't we this morning? Buddhang Saranangachami, Dharmang Saranangachami, Sanghang Saranangachami. Sometimes we're into it, sometimes we're not. Where was your mind? Do you remember when we were doing that? Were you with it? Were you doing it? Or did your mind wander off? So in Sukhavati, whenever you hear the sound of the wind in the trees, you are suffused, your body is suffused by the presence of the Buddha all the way through your body and the Dharma all the way through your body and the Sangha all the way through. So there's no part of you that is not saturated with Buddha, Dharma and Sangha. And this is why we come on retreat, isn't it? Because a lot of the time we're sort of half into it or maybe a third or a quarter into the Dharma and we're quite a lot into other things, have to earn a living and we get distracted. But here 
we can become completely suffused. So the pure land is the Dharma land. It's the realm of reality, which is present all the time, all the time. All we have to do is wake up to it. Yeah, stop uh, resisting it. Stop resisting it and let the world come in. Okay, that will do for now. We'll have, you know I don't like applause, don't you? <laughs> we'll have tea and then after tea uh, we'll come back in and I'll read you some of the text and we'll try and immerse ourselves in the text and then we're going to listen to the sounds of the Pure Land before lunch. We'll ring a bell in about 20 minutes, shall we? Yeah.